at this time, I'd like to welcome our scripture reader for this morning, Apollo 8. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. you join me in a word of prayer? Our wonderful and marvelous creator God, you remind us this morning that the darkness of ignorance and of doubt, it cannot overcome your life-giving word. And so this morning, may your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing, to the living to the obeying of your radiant truth. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, that message was brought to you by the crew of Apollo 8, Christmas Eve 1968. And they were circling the dark side of the moon and they came around the moon and then they saw the earth illuminated by the sun. They saw the earth in all of its majesty and all of its splendor against that blackness of space, that void of space. And it's interesting, Bill Anders, one of the astronauts, he said, man, we prepared for this mission. We, we prepared to explore the moon, and what we discovered was not the moon. We discovered the earth on that day. And this is interesting about them. These guys, they're highly trained. They're highly educated. They're scientists. And they did not draw from the words of Einstein. They didn't draw from the words of the poets. But they drew from God's eternal word. And seeing the earth in all of its beauty, in all of its splendor, but so small, 
So alone amidst the vastness of space, they began to ponder the creation of the earth, the creation not only of the earth, but the entire cosmos. And then they uttered those famous words, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God was the subject of the message that they beamed back to earth in 1968. God is the subject of Genesis 1. It is the subject, actually, of the entire Bible. And so God will form the outline of what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to see that God, he creates. God creates. We're going to see that God evaluates. And then we're going to also see that God reigns. God creates. God evaluates. God reigns. But before we jump into those points, just a little bit of background I want to establish for you. It's going to be important. Uh, And that is this. I want to establish the fact that Moses is the author of Genesis, not only of Genesis, but the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Early Christian tradition, uh, early Jewish tradition, scholars would support this. Uh, And if you begin to read carefully the Pentateuch and some of the rest of Scripture, you'll begin to see that Scripture itself even supports this idea that Moses was the author and that he's writing under the inspiration and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would have to because he's writing about something that he didn't witness himself, right? He's writing about the creation of the universe, Now, if we read through the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you're going to realize that if Moses wrote that, he's probably writing these words towards the end of his life. And it's actually at a time right before Joshua that we're studying right now. So the, the nation is right there on the plains of Moab, and they're hearing from the word of God that Moses is writing down. Now, why is this important? It's going to be important because as we unpack three three points, I'm going to come back to this occasionally and remind you, Moses had a purpose for which he was writing these words to the Israelites. And so let's look at that first point that God creates. We see this in verses 1 and 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so in these just few verses, we learn a couple of things about God. One, that he obviously is the creator. But secondly, that God is eternal. He created the heavens and the earth. That compound, heavens and earth, is meant to capture everything in creation. It's meant to capture the cosmos, in other words, the entire universe. And so the universe has a beginning, But our God does not have a beginning. He has no beginning. He has no end. Other other places in scripture, you'll see the word everlasting, that he lasts forever. Now, it's interesting to remember the context. Go back to the context of Moses on the plains of Moab speaking to the Israelites. And he's trying to communicate something in these verses to the nation of Israel. And so I want you to remember this. The nation of Israel came from Abraham. And Abraham and his forefathers were what? They were pagans. They were pagans worshiping idols. 
They were worshiping idols of creation, worshiping idols that were created from things of creation. And then secondly, remember this. The Israelites had spent 400 years in Egypt. So not only do they have in their heritage uh, this idol worship, but they've been 400 years as a people in Egypt being exposed to the Egyptian gods. And Moses here is trying to communicate something very important to the people of God, and it's this, that Yahweh, their God, is different. Yahweh is the one who created everything. Yahweh is the one who is not part of creation. He is separate from creation. And more than that, he is eternal. He existed even before anything in creation existed. Now, eternity is something very hard for us to to have our minds grasp. Uh, Mathematician Spencer Greenberg, he observes this. Humans have a hard time grasping large numbers. Once the numbers get beyond a certain point, they kind of lose all of their meaning to us. Um, I'm thinking that many of you out there uh, know that the national debt is around $31 trillion. Now, that's, that's 12 zeros behind it, and I think actually because of inflation, uh, that number doesn't seem so big anymore, right? Uh, we can maybe grasp trillions of dollars, But what about this number? 70 sextillion stars in the universe. That's what scientists say. I I have no idea how they measured that, right? Uh, But is that number bigger than the number of grains on all of the beaches in the world? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, right? It's 21 zeros behind that number. So it's a giant, giant number. But when we think about God and his eternal nature, it's not just saying, okay, God, uh, he lives for, and tack on a number and add on 100 zeros or 1,000 zeros or a million zeros or a billion or a trillion or a sextillion zeros. No, God is in a completely, completely different category than saying that he endures for that amount of time, okay? God, he actually transcends all temporal limitations. He transcends all temporal limitations. Now, that's, that's going to stretch your mind here, so how am I going to explain this? I'm going to go to Louis Burkhoff. He is a, a theologian. This is how he says it. Our existence... It's marked off by days and weeks and months and years. Not so the existence of God. Our life is divided into a past, a present, and the future, but there is no such division in the life of God. He is the eternal I am. And his eternity may be defined as that perfection of God whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits in all succession of moments, and possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. And then your mind goes, you you know, uh, what is Burkhoff trying to say here? We understand the passage of time, right? These moments, these events that are happening. We have a past, a present, and a future, but that is not the case with the eternal God. 
One day is as a thousand years to God. A thousand years is as a day to God, which means he is standing outside of time. He doesn't know the passage of time like we do. Now you're saying, well, that's great, I guess. Uh, Why is that important? Why would the people of Israel need to know about this, that God is eternal in nature? And so remember back in Joshua how we're studying about these promises, that God had made promises in the past through Father Abraham, right? And the people in the present of Israel are hearing these promises, and they're wondering about the future. Well, if God was not present in the future, if God did not span and stand above all time, we wonder about how his promises, if they would endure, and I think maybe you, you make a sense of this if you've owned stock or gift certificates in a company that no longer exists, like Toys R Us, right, or Blockbuster. Now, how good is that stock or how good was that gift card now? It's not worth anything because that company did not endure. But it's not the case with God. His promises to us are sure His promises to us as people who are in Christ, when we look to our future, we know that the promise is sure. Why? Because God, he doesn't, He's not bound by time. He's already there. He's already in the future. And so his promises to us are sure. We see also how God not only is he eternal, but how he created. And how did he do that? He simply spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Now, in Moses' day, there weren't gods that could do this. There was no other god on the planet that could speak, and all of a sudden, something come into being. And also, if you think about the Egyptian gods that the Israelites were exposed to, one of them, the name was Re or Ra. He was the sun god. Uh, He was the deity of the sun. And here we're seeing that Yahweh... He speaks and light happens. He is the creator of the sun. So Yahweh, what Moses is saying to the Israelites, Yahweh is so far above those Egyptian gods. He's the one that created light itself. We see also in the New Testament how Jesus had this same power of words. He had power in his words. Do you guys remember in Mark chapter 4, Uh, The disciples are in the boat. Jesus is in the boat. He's taking a nap because he's worn out from all of this ministry. And what happens? A storm comes up, and the boat's rocking, and the disciples, they get completely afraid, and they wake up Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the wind. He rebukes the seas. He says, peace, be still. And what happens? The ocean, the seas, they calm down. The winds, they stop. Jesus' words, peace be still, has power over the forces of nature. And so we see that God's word is distinct. There's something special about it. It doesn't just convey information. God's word is power. God's word is power. And that should be a comfort for us this morning. Because if you're going through a storm in your life this morning, God's word has real power to calm the storm in your life. 
When he says, says to you, be still and know that I am God, that is real power to bring peace, to bring calm to whatever it is that you're going through. Well, God's word, it brings power, it brings uh, creation, it brings life. We see this also in a spiritual way. In Romans chapter 10, it says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And so what we're saying here is the good news, the good news that we here at Lake Baldwin Church cherish so deeply for the lost to found the city and the world. That good news is the words. They are the words of eternal life. They have the power to allow us to flourish, whether you know Christ or not. They have the power for human flourishing and vitality. There is no other words on planet Earth like the Word of God. No other words like the Word of God. No other media that has power in itself. And so how do you treat? How are you treating God's Word? So that's how God, he creates Secondly, God, he evaluates in verse four, we see, and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. And so we see in this that God is making a moral judgment. He's saying that he saw that the light was good. What this means is that God is the one who is the arbiter of good and evil, of right and of Wrong. Now, we live in a day and an age where there is all sorts of confusion about this. And unfortunately, our kids are growing up completely confused about right and wrong. And why is that? Well, as a society, we've replaced God as the arbiter of right and wrong with us. We are the arbiter of right and wrong. Truth is relative to what I think and what I say. Truth depends. Roger Wengert, who is the philosophy professor at the University of Illinois, he, he, he starts out his ethics class in this way. He says, students, now if you believe that truth is relative, go ahead and raise your hand. And about two-thirds of the students raise their hand. And so he begins to talk about the syllabus and talk about the homework and talk about tests and he goes on to talk about how they're going to be graded or evaluated. And he says, I'm going to grade this way. I'm going to grade by your height. And of course, some of the tall people in the class are getting super excited. Uh, but then he says, well, you've got it wrong. It's, it's the short people in the class who are going to get the good grade. And so they, they, they get happy, but then the tall people are unhappy and then, of course, there's this argument and ensuing discussion about, well, what way should it be graded? And then they begin to argue with the professor and say that, no, you should grade us on our merit. That's the fair way that you ought to grade. And then Professor Wengert has them right where he wants them. And he says, no, if you believe that truth is relative, then I am using my truth because when you say something is fair or something ought to be a certain way, you're betraying your belief that truth is relative. You believe in some sort of standard. Relative truth, it does not work. Moral relativism 
is doomed to failure. In Isaiah, the prophet says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So not only does moral relative not work, it doesn't bode well for a society who is going down this path and getting confused about how do I determine what's right and what's wrong? Because you see, what, what's happening here is Isaiah, he's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the northern and the southern kingdoms because they have this confusion of what is right and what is wrong. And we know the end of the story for them. They're gonna go into exile that's what Isaiah is going to preach to them about. And if we come back to Genesis and the Israelites on the verge of the promised land, this would be a significant teaching for them. They probably had received God's law. This would reaffirm to them something very important, and it's this, that, that truth, that their ethics would be not based on themselves, it would be based on God. God would be the one who would provide the ethics. God would be the one who would establish what is good. A super important lesson. Why is that? Well, we'll see. Remember in, in Joshua chapter 7 what happened? Achan, he saw and he took. He was following what he thought was good, right? Adam and Eve, what did they do? They thought they knew what was good. And we do the very same thing when we sin. We think we know what is good. And Moses is teaching the people of Israel here, God is the one who establishes what is good. It's not relative to what we think. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on Almighty God. Well, God is saying here that light is a good thing. He's making a moral judgment. Some of you guys know that I love to hunt. And what that means is sometimes, in some occasions, I'll find myself miles away from anyone and in the middle of the woods somewhere in the swamp here in Florida uh, in total darkness. So you know what happens when you turn out that, off that flashlight and there's no moon? It's, it's utter, utter darkness. You can't, you can't even see this going on. You can't see anything. So physical, physical light is a good thing. And interestingly this, I think we all realize this, without light, planet Earth would do what? It would die. No life at all. That's what the scientists, uh, they hypothesize. And so isn't it interesting that God, who is the ultimate source of light, he brings life and if there is no God, there is no light. And if there's no light, there is no life at all. He's the source of light. He is the source of life itself. And this motif, this theme of light, uh, as we look through the rest of scriptures, we see that it incorporates more than just something physical in nature. It, it speaks about something that is spiritual, Augustine says it this way, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. I gave you, gave you that quote earlier this week uh, in the weekly update. It's also in your bulletin, but ponder it for a moment with me. 
What Augustine is trying to say is that we don't work at our understanding so that we can believe. We actually get understanding from believing, okay? We begin to understand what it means as a human. What We begin to understand our world. We understand God when we come to faith. And I think some of you may understand what I'm talking about because when you became a Christian, when you became a Christian and started reading the Bible, all of a sudden, everything started to make sense in the world. You began to understand sin and suffering and evil. You began to understand yourself. You began to understand why you do the things you do. You began to understand God, who he is. Psalm 36 says it this way, in your light do we see light. In other words, in God's light do we see truth. And so there is a place to find absolute truth. God is truth. He is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So we've seen how God, he creates. We see how God, he evaluates. Now we see in verse 5, God reigning. He reigns this way. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now in, in naming the light and the, and the darkness, God is exercising his authority as sovereign ruler over the entire universe. This is a divine prerogative of his. And I think moms and, and dads here, uh, if you're a parent, you know about this. You get the right to name your children, right? And scientists also, when they discover a new creature or something new, they get the right. They have that right to name that new thing. And I was reading this article this past week about this uh, group of scientists in Finland. They found this interesting uh, indestructible new species. Uh, and, and they could freeze it, and they froze it for 30 years, and it, and it still came back to life. They shot it in the space at thousands of miles an hour, and it was still alive, and all of this stuff. And it looks like a heffalump to me, um, little tiny thing. But they, they named it after uh, the snake in Harry Potter's book, uh, Voldemort's snake, right? Nagini. And it sounds a little bit ludicrous to me, but guess what? They are the ones that discovered this creature. So what? They are exercising their authority to name this new creature. And so God here, what he is doing in naming parts of creation, he is exerting his exclusive power, his dominion as the sovereign ruler and the creator. I think it's interesting to note that God also names the darkness he names the darkness, and what does that mean? It means that he has authority, dominion. He rules over the darkness as well, and that should be a comfort as w to us as well this morning, right? Because if you're going through a rough time, if you are facing darkness in your life, this is a comforting idea that God, he rules even over the darkness. The darkness is not outside of God's rule and his reign. Naming also has significance in scriptures as we see. It indicates a new beginning. It indicates a new creation. And we see this in the Old Testament where God, he gives Abram, he gives Sarai, he gives Jacob new names. And then we see it also in the New Testament when Jesus 
gives Simon a new name. He calls him Petros in the Greek. Peter. Petros, the rock, the stone. And Peter, who is one of my most favorite uh, characters in the Bible because um, he's just impulsive, he's brash, he's overconfident, he overpromises, underdelivers, impulsive sort of person. And Jesus, when Jesus gets a hold of his heart, he makes him a new creation. He gives him a new name. He calls him something that he wasn't. He says, you are the rock, the stone. You are stable. And so Peter would have to remember all his life, he is no longer that impulsive, unstable person. He is the rock. He would have to live out of his new identity. He would be, with the other disciples, the rock, the foundation of that fledgling church. And I, I find it fascinating that Peter, in his epistle, he calls us a rock or a stone. Peter the stone says this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we too have a new name. We too have a new identity. We too are stones. We are stones of this structure that God is building, Christ being the cornerstone the disciples being the foundation, we are parts of this building called the church, the body of Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. It is our new identity, and it's from this new identity that we live as believers. Having a new identity gives us new language, new ways to speak. It gives us a new way to live. It gives us a new community. It gives us a new way to invest our time, our talent, and our treasures. That's the way we ought to be living out of our new identity. Well, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there's been light in this world ever since that time. In the beginning, it's signaling that there is a story going on here, and this is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is a story of redemption. And so the fact that there is a beginning is an anticipation that there's an end. There's an end to the story of redemption. And it ends this way with Christ coming back and restoring all things. And this morning, we hear in this space and in this time, we're living in the middle of this story of redemption. And in this Advent season, we're focusing on, we're anticipating, we're celebrating the fact that love's pure light has come into the world, but we are also waiting and we're longing for that day when love's pure light will come again and bring restoration to all things. Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so it's only in following Jesus that we're gonna get all of our questions answered. It's only in Jesus that we're gonna see and know and clearly understand. And it's only in Jesus that we're going to have what is meant by true life. And so if you're here this morning, you may have come this morning with questions in your heart and in your mind, and you're seeking to know 
God. And we're so thankful that you're here engaging with us this Advent season. You may be here this morning with those questions. You may be here this morning and you have been overcome by the darkness. You may be struggling. You may be grieving. You may be even facing serious illness or death. And I want to encourage you in this way this morning. Only in following Jesus, only in following Jesus will you find everything that you're looking for. He is the light of the world. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Lord, that we have an anchor in you, that there is such a thing as absolute truth, and you are the one in all the universe that defines truth. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning. Forgive us, Lord, as we day by day, and even during this Advent season, we want to call what is good, good. Help us, Lord, to see what you call good. Help us to agree with you. Lord, strengthen our faith this morning. Help us to see your dear son, light coming into the world so that we can have hope. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.